All right. Well, uh, if we haven't met before yet, my name is Dan. I serve as the teaching pastor for our Worthington campus. And just as we're getting started, let me say, hey, if this is your first time with us at LifePoint or at the Worthington campus, one of the easiest ways to get some more information about what's going on here, what we believe God has called us to uh, in this church, is to take out your uh, phone and you can scan the QR code that's on one of the chairs in front of you. That will take you to a landing page called lpguest.com, where you can find a number of things, one of them being a welcome card uh, that just gives us a point of contact to reach out and hear a little bit more about your story and uh, share more about what we believe God has called us to here uh, in the Worthington community. All right, Uh, as we're getting started today, let me just throw out a question and I need you to respond back to me a little bit. Who's got like a favorite Christmas story? It can be a book or or a movie, favorite ones right now. Shut them out. That's not a Christmas movie. 100%. It's like Die Hard. Oh, there you go. There you go. It happens to take place at Christmas. That's my strong opinion about that one movie. So uh, what else? What else? Elf. Elf. That's a good one. Elf. Okay. Come on. What? Say it again. All right. Pagan. All right. What else? What else? Home Alone. Okay. I'm hearing a lot of wrong answers. This is okay. It's okay. Uh, The right answer, of course, uh, is... Uh, like I've shared before, A Christmas Carol, and I would have accepted either the unabridged book by Charles Dickens or the 1990s adaptation, A Muppet's Christmas, both of which are absolutely fantastic. Uh, You know the story, though, of A Christmas Carol, right? It's kind of famous. You have Ebenezer Scrooge, who is this, like, stingy, old, grouchy businessman who cannot be bothered with anybody else's problems. He'd rather just live alone and let everybody else die alone without him. He doesn't need to be bothered by it. He's visited by four ghosts, you remember his old business partner, uh, Jacob Marley, or in the Muppets version, it's Robert Marley, meaning it's Bob Marley, which is awesome. Um, uh, and of course, you're the ghost of Christmas past, present, and Christmas yet to come. They all visit him in one night. And at the end, in this resounding fashion, Scrooge uh, comes to his senses. He has a change of heart, and all of a sudden, uh, he is now the biggest advocate for Christmas that there ever was. Now, What you might not know about this story, uh, A Christmas Carol, is that when Charles Dickens first sat down to write this story, he did not intend on writing what would become a uh, favorite uh, classic Christmas story at all. In fact, what he was working on at the time was more of a, he was working on a pamphlet to distribute around London to talk about the unjust treatment of the poor in England at the time. He wanted to raise awareness for what life was like uh, and kind of highlight some things that people could do differently to solve the problem of poverty in, uh, in the British Empire. That's what he intended to write. And after he went through several drafts, he realized, like, I just can't capture anybody's, um, I can't capture anybody's imagination. I can't make them feel this problem that I so tangibly feel. I want to motivate them to do something else. And so he scrapped that writing project and said, you know what? A story is going to do it better than this uh, little treatise I'm working on here. And thus was born a Christmas carol. And the interesting piece about this is uh, people who study Charles Dickens and kind of literary historians notice that what he did was inadvertently begin a new trend in the Christmas world. 
You see, he, he was describing all of these different Christmas scenes, right? Remember, as the ghosts of Christmas past and present kind of show him different glimpses of Christmases that he either missed out on because he wasn't interested or is currently missing uh, because of his own personality, refusing to celebrate at all. Uh, and what they notice is that the way that Charles Dickens uh, described these was completely over the top. I mean, historically, at that point, everybody who originally read A Christmas Carol, nobody could resonate with the kinds of uh, Christmas scenes that Charles Dickens was writing because nobody celebrated Christmas like that. He intended it for it to be over the top as a way to make his point. It was unintentionally unrealistic. But what's interesting is that his depiction of Christmas was so compelling that as people read it, they so wanted that to be the way Christmas was, that it uh, began to create this uh, longing for the ideal Christmas that used to exist. And, and we are all, today, we are bought hook, line, and sinker into this idea that we need to get back to the way Christmas was before. Shows up in all of our songs, right? That's why we're dreaming of a white Christmas like the ones we used to know. That's why we talk about, that's uh, why we, we say this year, we'll tell tales uh, or scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I mean, that, that, that line in uh, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, that's talking about this story right here. That's why we keep singing the same songs over and over and over again every year, at least the ones that are on the radio, and most of us are done with those songs by today. That's why every Hallmark movie is set in this charming old world small town to draw us out of the modern chaos that we currently live in and back into simpler times if only it were that easy. Our imagination is drawn back to the past and what Christmas was. And we love it. We love it. But what if, what if in our quest for Christmas as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, we have missed something. What if being drawn back to a simpler time, we have unintentionally disnified and sanitized the Christmas story? What if the reason we keep wishing for a merry little Christmas next year is because this year we wake up on December 26th only to find that things are exactly as they were back in November. Life is no better than it was back then. We discover that Christmas, again, did not change anything. But then again, there's always next year. And today, just in just a few short moments that we have together, I want to take some time to talk about this phenomena of looking back at Christmas time. And we will look back for a moment, but what we will discover is that the story the scriptures tell is not one that simply calls us backwards, but, but just like, like a slingshot is pulled back only to launch powerfully forward, so the Christmas story casts us out of the past, changing the way that we live here and now for the rest of our lives. 
So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to the New Testament book of Colossians. New Testament book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 1 briefly today. Uh, If you need help finding Colossians in your Bible, it's one of the smaller books right towards the end. Always remember the table of contents is your friend. There is no judgment here. Uh, We'll also have it on the screen behind me. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read this passage. We'll pray. And then we'll discover why this passage actually has way more to do with Christmas than we might imagine at first. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you uh, heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, that we get to be in this place today. Lord, and some of us may not even be too sure what we're doing at a church uh, on, uh, on a Sunday morning. Maybe we've come on the arm of a friend or family member. That is kind of the thing that we do sometimes on Christmas. Some of us have been looking forward to this for many weeks, gathering with uh, our church family again, wherever we are at today. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us and that you would do far more than just kind of uh, challenge our thinking, but that you would change our hearts. That there, there would be a moment of true in real and lasting transformation. Uh, some of us right now, we're, we're anxious about what the next two days might bring, whether it's being with family or friends that we're honestly not looking forward to being with, and the conversations that may arise there. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be patient and to look not to our circumstance and the uh, current uh, issues that are just kind of playing out on repeat, uh, but Father, that we'd look to you, that you'd be our source of comfort and joy. And so Lord, we pray for your help today. Lord, we also are mindful that we're not the only church that's meeting today right now, and so we pray specifically uh, for Worthington Christian just up the street from us. Lord, we, we ask that uh, you bless them in their time together and their services Lord, that there would be uh, a a clear uh, exaltation of Jesus today. Lord, that you would make your name famous in and through that church. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you'd remind us that with the many other gospel preaching churches across uh, the greater Columbus area, we find uh, brothers in arms, we find those who join with us in the work of the gospel kingdom here uh, in uh, in this city. And so, Lord, we pray blessing on them. We trust you, Lord. We are grateful, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started. You're going to be asking the same question I was asking when I got this text and realized this is what we were going to be preaching across LifePoint for Christmas. What, what does this have to do with Christmas? Why are, we, why are we teaching this passage? Well, let's back up for a moment. We're eventually going to get there, but let me kind of reframe this uh, for a second. You're familiar maybe with the, the, the biblical Christmas story of Joseph and Mary, uh, shepherds and angels. Interestingly enough, there's no drummer boy, uh, so I don't know where that came from, uh, but it is the story essentially of Jesus' birth. 
right? Story of Jesus' birth. And I think in many ways, those are the main ingredients of the holiday that we celebrate today as Christmas. In the minds of many, though, it, 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 I mean, it's like, it, functionally, it's a birthday, right? And you don't even have to be a Christian to, uh, to believe that, uh, at the very least, Jesus was an incalculably influential person in human history. And, and so if we get a day off for Washington, you know, maybe Jesus should get one too, Right? And so we have our parties, we have our traditions, we have our songs, we have our movies uh, that year after year we uh, participate in that either numb the pain for a little bit or uh, genuinely make us feel a little bit better through much of the month of December. But if we dig just a little bit deeper, what we find embedded within the Christmas story is themes that, that are not so warm and fuzzy. Things that don't like align with the holly jolly spirit of the age. We actually find a story that is saturated in pain and brokenness all over the place. The Gospel of Matthew gives, I think, some of the most recognizable details of this story uh, as we know it, though we usually skip over uh, or just don't put much emphasis on one of these parts. You remember the characters. You have Mary and Joseph, right? And they are betrothed. They're, that means they're engaged to be married. And uh, this would not have been a private matter. I mean, everybody would have been in on this. Friends, family, their whole community would have known that they are engaged to be married. And the first miracle in the New Testament is that Mary is somehow pregnant and she's carrying a child from the Lord. And, and if that feels odd to you, like, okay, that. I don't think that is possible. Uh, you're in good company because Matthew, the person she's with, right, he didn't believe her either. In Matthew chapter one, he decides that, like, it, it says, because he's a decent guy, being a righteous man, because uh, he's a decent guy, he decides he's just going to divorce her quietly, kind of move on with that. Maybe she's crazy. She's got some stuff going on. Clearly, she needs to figure some stuff out. So he's going to kind of go his own way. Not going to make a scene. He's calling off the wedding. Why? Because he doesn't believe her. What do you mean you're pregnant? You know, a child from the Lord? What are you talking about? And so the beginning of this Christmas story starts with this like failing, broken relationship that will be devastating and humiliating for everyone involved. Right? We, don't, we don't often talk about that setting of uh, the story. And yet right at the last minute before Joseph goes through with any of his plans, he is visited, we're told, by an angel. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 as he's considering these things, as he's getting ready to, to, to pull his plan, right? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary uh, for, as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's the part, I think, that uh, on, uh, culturally, we, we don't do much with, kind of skip over. Shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, from a biblical perspective, right, the whole point of the Christmas story is not simply that Jesus was born. That's a part of the story, but that's not what the story is about. It's not celebrating a, a birthday. It's about what he was born to do, born to save his people from their sins. And it's not hard to understand why uh, we don't like this part of the story so much. Because Christmas, as we celebrate it today, 
is supposed to make us feel better. It's supposed to be the time of year when uh, we forget about our problems for a little while and let the goodness of humanity shine through the gloom of everyday life, if even for just a, a moment. We don't want a conversation with what is wrong in the world around us. We don't want a conversation with, with what might be wrong with us. We, we want to talk about what is good and right and beautiful and happy. And the problem is, if we only look back at this time of year to uh, sentimentalize what Christmas used to be like, we end up sanitizing a story that is remarkably powerful. We don't like this business of he's gonna save us from our sins. We might not even believe that that's a real thing that that we wrestle with today. Like as a society, we've moved past this idea of sin. But I want you to notice, I came across an article uh, from George Saunders, who's a humanities professor at Syracuse. Uh, Time Magazine named him one of the most, you know, one of the uh, 100 most influential thinkers of our age. And he kind of brings some very interesting language to this problem of brokenness. And he kind of gives a framework that I think is helpful. He wrote an article called The Problem with Being Human. He's not writing as a follower of Jesus. He wrote an article called The Problem of Being Human. And I think it gives some language to this brokenness that I'm, I'm talking about. And it, he makes the argument that uh, humanity, like all of us, we seem to have this uh, deep embedded desire uh, to survive, like survival is hardwired into each and every one of us, uh, and that we tend to ascribe a significant level or the most significant level of meaning to ourselves than we could possibly imagine. He says it this way. It's very interesting. He says, the mind, or you and I, uh, we, we take uh, takes out of this vast unitary wholeness of everything that we see around us, we, we find one tiny segment of it, me and my body, and we start narrating stories from that point of view only, just like, uh, and just like that. The, the entity, me, becomes real, and surprise, surprise, it's located at the very center of the universe. And everything that is happening is happening in my movie, so to speak. It is all somehow both for and about me. Isn't that, isn't that how we experience life? We are always the main character. And in this way, moral judgment arises. What is good for him is, what is good for me is good, and vice versa. He says it this way, we are all navigating in every moment through a terrible, beautiful, confusing landscape with a deeply flawed navigational tool. In other words, there's something about being human that's just off. In other words, each and every one of us believes that we are the very center of the universe. The problem is we tend to live as if that is true. And when we all believe that and we all start living in that way, even in small ways, we are inevitably going to invade on somebody else's territory and someone else's kingdom, if it were, in their story when it suits us best. Simply put, selfishness is a part of our hardware and it will try and destroy whatever gets in its path. This is why, when my son yesterday, when he accidentally left Legos on the floor, after I told him to put them away, and I stepped on said Legos without any shoes on, and you know, yelled out in pain, I'm angry at him, why? Not because he left Legos on the floor. Because he got in my way and his actions caused me pain. 
Right? I, I'm the set. He should have done what I told him to do, so that wouldn't have affected me. It's why the anger can pop up in us in all of those different kinds of situations. It's why we can so easily shut down when we're sitting across from our, the crazy uncle you're probably going to see in the next two days who's going off again about some political tangent that you, you strongly disagree with and think he's nuts, and you're just so tired of having to deal with it again. And so you shut down because they're invading in our personal space. They're invading the center of our universe. See, it's a part of the Christmas story we don't like to talk about, that the world around us is broken, that we ourselves are broken, and therefore need a savior. Now, let's jump back to the passage, Colossians chapter 1, because this is exactly what Paul is talking about. Look at me at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is how he's talking about that church. You see, and as we look back over the course of our own lives, we can all see this trail of evidence for the brokenness infecting everything in our lives. You look at my own past, there's, there's a long history of, of things that have been done to me, things I have done to other people that, have, that brought harm. It pops up out of my heart. And all of us have this evidence. If we're honest with ourselves, even through the, all the warm fuzzies of the Christmas season that are supposed to make us feel okay, uh, we, we can all say when we read the, the, that verse from uh, Paul, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, we can all say, hey, that, that was me. That is me. You see how we tend to cut this part out of the Christmas story? We, we want baby Jesus born in a manger. We want the drummer boy for some reason. Uh, we want the gifts, the kindness. But at the end of the day, we don't, want a, we don't want a savior because we don't want to need a savior. Now, this strikes at the very core of our identity is of the American dream that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of idea, right? We, we don't want to need a savior. And again, what happens without us even realizing it, is exactly what happened to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We, we recreate an artificial story. We look back, and we create in our own mind this artificial story. We end up telling and retelling a story that has been sanitized and robbed of its power in, in all in an effort to make us feel better uh, for just a little while. This is why people uh, both love and rail against Hallmark movies. Because we want those things to be true. We, we want to wake up and find out that your crazy wrench uncle actually died. You don't have to meet with him at Christmas. And he left you a fortune. And guess what? That fortune includes a farm in upstate New York. And you can go and find the love of your life there. We want something like that to be true. Where we wake up and find all of our uh, problems solved. And the reality is uh, it never works out like that. That's not life. That's not real. So we love it. We hate it. Because it's empty. It's empty. And I wonder, I wonder if you're like me. I wonder if you're like me, because is the older I get, the more I feel let down this time of year. I just do. I feel let down. And it's not because I'm squashing the Christmas spirit. 
Right? I love Christmas music. I've walked up to every sermon in this series listening to some Christmas song that, that I love. Right? I, I, I like doing that kind of thing. I love Christmas music. I love Christmas movies. But there's something, there's something that just, it just feels a little, feels a little artificial. As much as I love my traditions, and I know you do too, as much as I love my songs, and I know you do too, and as much as I love getting together with my family and uh, friends, it's like I wake up from a sugar coma on December 26th, and again, I find out that like all the stuff I was worried about in November, and I was worried about a lot in November, those things didn't get solved. The magic of the Christmas spirit did not uh, uh, smooth over all that stuff that was going on. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still frustrated. I'm still, uh, I'm still selfish. I'm still angry. It hasn't been erased, nor has the impact of my brokenness on other people been somehow smoothed over by the most wonderful time of the year. And again, this may be a big if, but if you are like me, you, you will find uh, that on December 26th, you'll find this afternoon, you're still hurt. You're still frustrated. You're still worried. There's, there's still something going on in your life that Christmas time has once again failed to deal with. And of course, you know, this is what the church is about. If this is supposed to be this, you know, climactic moment for, uh, for, for the church and it didn't work this time, maybe the whole thing is thrown away. I think this is what we're left with year after year when we only look back on a Christmas story that is devoid of brokenness and silent on sin and as good as it might make us feel for a moment, skipping over this part, I think, robs the true power of this story. Because this is not where the true Christmas story ends. So the Christmas story in the scriptures calls us backwards, but it does not simply show us a birthday. It reveals our brokenness and reveals the brokenness of our world so that it can highlight our need of a savior. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about as you keep reading verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, uh, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, this is the work of Jesus on our behalf that we look to at the Christmas story, that, that, that he has taken all of those, those of us who were worn out and uh, are broken. He takes those of us who have been wounded, who are tired, who are ragged, who are empty, who are done, and he brings healing. We talked about this last week, how the work of Jesus on uh, his death and resurrection, that makes it possible for us to have a restored relationship with God the Father, that in Jesus we find ourselves rightly aligned to the true maker and ruler of all things. But I love the way that Paul talks about it here. There's a unique way he talks about this here, because what he makes clear is that Jesus does not just observe the brokenness of humanity, he enters into the brokenness of humanity and takes it on himself. In other words, he is broken with us, for us. 
I see Jesus does not just sit back and judge the world as he sees it, but he takes all of the brokenness upon himself, the full weight of our guilt, everything we feel, a deep sense of shame over all of that on his body as he is broken on the cross in our place for our sin. And the story of the gospel tells us that a great exchange takes place at the cross where all of Jesus' perfection, all of his righteousness, his blamelessness, his, his holiness is actually transferred to us. As in, God now sees you as having Jesus' perfection, as having Jesus' righteousness, as having Jesus' holiness. God sees you as he sees Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says, uh, we who were once alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, have now been reconciled reconciled in our relationship with God and friends. This is the Jesus we worship at uh, Christmas. This is the Savior King. And we celebrate not just that he was born, but what he was born to do to save his people from their sin. And here's what we can't miss. Closing up here. Here's what we can't miss. Instead of the Christmas story being a story that leaves us in the past, we find in the scriptures a story that grabs a hold of us, body and soul, and says, hey, there is a new kind of life. There is a new way of life. There, there, there is a new way of life. It, 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 in a lot of ways, it says, hey, you actually can have your own George Bailey moment. You can have your own Ebenezer Scrooge moment. You can have your own Grinch moment where everything about you is radically changed. You can have a new way of life, life the way it's meant to be lived, and all of this offered to you, not in a tradition, not in a season, not in a birthday, but offered to you by faith in the Savior. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about as he ends this section. Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. One last thing before we finish up. I think we need to explore this word for a moment, this word faith, because we have a problem with the word faith. Think of it this way. Words, just like food, every word has a flavor. Every word has a flavor. And a word like faith has a strong religious flavor to us. Doesn't it? I mean, we usually talk about it in terms of religious things today, but th th that's not uh, the way that Paul would have thought about this word when he originally used it. Remember, the New Testament was not originally written in English. It was written in Koine Greek, ancient uh, Greek. And one of the advantages of that is that we have an enormous body of books and documents all from that same time period in Greek. And it allows us to compare some of the words in the New Testament uh, to some of the, uh, how the other thinkers, writers, uh, politicians, and leaders of the ancient world were using those same words. It gives us a fascinating glimpse at how language worked back then. And when we do that with this word faith, right, in Paul's day we find that it did not have a religious flavor to it. It was not a religious word almost at all. It had a political flavor to it. It's almost exclusively used to describe not somebody's relationship to a deity, but to describe somebody's relationship to a king 
or to a ruler. It was a word that meant something much more like allegiance or loyalty. You think about this for a moment. I, I think that drastically changes how we view a phrase that gets used in the church all the time. Faith in Jesus. Because all of a sudden, faith moves out of the realm of this, this vague idea of to, to believe in something, and then you run into the same problem there. Well, what does that even mean? And it gives us something a bit more concrete, like allegiance, to say that you are on his team, that you are with him. More than that, keeping with all this political flavor of it, it is a statement uh, to have faith in Jesus is, uh, is to say that he is your king. He is the one that you follow. And when he is your king, friends, this changes the way we live the rest of our lives because we no longer operate. When he is our king, we no longer operate from this default setting that we looked at a couple moments ago where, where, where we, we seem to believe that we are the very center of our own universe, that what is good for me is good, full stop. No, a pledge of allegiance to King Jesus is all, and always will be a declaration of war against ourselves. But friends, this, this after all, is both the wonder and the power of the Christmas story. That the one who was holy and blameless and perfect, the king, has stepped down into our broke down, beat up, broken world to become like us so that by faith we could become like him. You see, this is the good news of great joy for all people. The Savior King, the one we need, has come and he offers us new and everlasting life. And so friends, this year, as we go into our celebrations tonight and tomorrow, do not look back at a birthday. Do not just look back at a birthday. Do not just look back to the birth of Jesus look back and be both confronted and comforted with what he was born to do. And in that, friends, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we get to be in this place today. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to teach us long after we leave this place. We ask that you'd grab a hold of our hearts, our minds, our imagination, that we would be gripped body and soul by the news that faith changes everything, that there is a redemption for our brokenness, there is healing for our woundedness in Jesus. And so today we celebrate not just that Jesus was born, but we sing, we celebrate what he was born to do. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.